Welcome to this special edition of the Orange Mailbox. In light of recent events concerning the coronavirus, we felt it would be beneficial to our listeners to have a local medical professional on our podcast to help answer any questions about this global pandemic. Joining us by telephone is Dr. Marty Pruce. Dr. Pruce, thanks for joining us this evening. Happy to be here. So uh, give us a little bit of your medical background education. Well, I, uh, I did my uh, medical school training at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland, after which I went directly into uh, active naval service as a naval officer and physician. Uh, practiced in a number of naval hospitals, Bremerton, Washington, and Portsmouth, Virginia, up in Maine, and did a couple of shipboard tours and visited the Persian Gulf a few times as a physician, and even in the course of that, dealt with an influenza epidemic uh, uh, and quarantine situations. Uh, then, uh, after my Navy career, came to work here, uh, well, actually came to work in Exeter, New Hampshire, and then uh, to here, uh, practicing in Marion General Hospital System as a family physician. And that's where I am tonight. So you're uh, very experienced in quarantine situations. I certainly have had some experience with it. Absolutely. It's a pretty common part of military medicine. So how did this coronavirus start? It's also called COVID-19, right? Close. COVID-19 is the disease that the uh, coronavirus causes. Okay. So uh, coronaviruses have been with us forever. Uh, In fact, we routinely see coronavirus illness in the United States year after year. Uh, It's a, a large family of viruses. What makes this one particularly interesting is nobody uh, on Earth met this virus uh, until the uh, the very end of December, beginning of January. Uh, this was a unique mutation of this virus, and in fact, the virus continues to mutate as we've been following it over the past three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that is when you have a very unique uh, mutation and a virus, in fact, has uh, infectivity and lethality, it becomes a very dangerous situation because no one has immunity. So it, it has free reign to run its course. And that's the challenge we're up against right now. Uh, the first reported case of this would have been in, in Wuhan, China. December 31st, the report came out and there were several cases in an open air food market there. And since that first case, as of right now, and, and probably before we go to bed tonight, we will hit 245,000 cases. Wow. Uh, and that is in uh, two and a half months. That's globally, uh, globally, right? Globally, correct. Two and a half months to infect a quarter of a million people. And of that, probably again before bed tonight, we'll be over 10,000 deaths worldwide from it. I think we're over 10,000 right now, actually. 9843. Is that the current? Yeah, yeah. And in, and those numbers, keep in mind, when you watch these numbers, uh, these are laboratory confirmed cases and clearly identified deaths. The numbers are certainly higher than that, but these are the ones we can proven uh, attribute to the the coronavirus 19. And that can be found where on the CDC website? Yes. uh, CDC has a a great tool you can look at. And if people are interested, uh, Johns Hopkins University has an excellent uh, map of how coronavirus is going that they update uh, every hour or two. 
So you said that this is a, um, it's the same strain, but a different mutation, I think is how you said it, correct? Exactly, exactly. We, we've tracked, even in, um, in this state, the Indiana State Department of Health tracks respiratory specimens that we submit to them for coronaviruses. There's a number of them. I would, in fact, suspect a, a goodly number of the listeners have probably had a coronavirus at one point in their life. Uh, these ones don't have the lethality uh, that we're seeing here and probably not even the infectivity, which is what makes this specific strain very, very unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coronavirus mutates all the time, and most of the mutations cause little more than a cold or maybe some GI illness, but this one has been dramatically different. Now, is this? uh, how would you compare this strain to the uh, bird flu, swine flu, what makes this more dangerous? Well, uh, interesting question. This one, in comparison, uh, is probably a, a little less lethal than the swine flu, maybe a little more infective. Uh, bird flu, it's similar to. So this, the true name of this virus is the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, and it causes COVID-19. The SARS virus is probably the closest cousin to this, and in fact, it even hits the same receptor in in the lungs. So SARS virus that many of your listeners may have heard of a few years back is a very, very close cousin. The problem with this one is it seems to be uh, much more able to be transmitted than the SARS virus was. That was much easier to be contained. And there were still quite a number of worldwide cases. Yes, there were. Now You said when this initial mutation came about, it was in Wuhan, China, in an open air food market. Yes, yeah. Explain what an open-air food market is. Well, in a lot of the uh, the Asian world, uh, they will do um, vegetable produce and even butchering of animals right on the street. It's a little different than what you'd experience uh, in North America. And uh, a lot of times when you have that close proximity of animals and people and and less than maybe ideal sanitary conditions, it's easier for some viruses to to skip from animal uh, host to human host through a mutation. So let's say a chicken in this market has this virus in it, but it doesn't have the ability to infect humans. If it mutates in such a way that it could infect humans, it's very easy in that environment for it to get over to a human host. And oftentimes that's where these things launch from as they come out of the animal population. Correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of these homes in China, since there's so many people that live there, they're just right next to each other. The animals actually live under the same roof as the people, correct? Very often. Very often in the evenings and such, they'll be brought into parts of the house. So they, the contact with, with animals uh, is, is pretty significant. Uh, and that's true even if you go back 100 years in New England. Most homes in New England for the winter months were physically attached to their barns uh, so that it was easy to access the animals and take care of the animals. Yeah. So the spreading of this virus, if it began through an animal, does this virus spread uh is it a respiratory virus and a uh, contact virus? Well, I would tell you there's probably three, three main modes in which this virus moves. The most common is respiratory droplets, the person coughing or sneezing, and you come directly in contact with the trajectory of their saliva, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that droplet spread is probably the most prevalent way in which this spreads. But we also have uh, what they call fomite transfer that really means simply that the same person has coughed or sneezed on on some hard surface. And that hard surface, depending on what it is, will carry the virus sometimes up to a few days. And then if you walk by and touch it with your bare hand and then your hand 
adjust your eyeglasses or, or rub your beard or mustache or something like that, you transmit from the tabletop or the counter or the doorknob uh, to your respiratory tract. That's probably pretty common. What doesn't seem real, real common, although it does exist, the potential is aerosol spread where somebody coughs and the room has it floating in the air for uh, hours and hours mm-hmm. and days. That can happen in certain situations. Usually the only situations would be medical procedures like somebody using a nebulizer uh, for their respiratory symptoms or somebody undergoing a respiratory procedure, a ventilated patient in the hospital. So we don't see a lot of maybe aerosol spread. It's the droplets either landing directly on you or on surfaces that you come in contact with. So outside of each person being in isolation, what's some of the precautions people can take to what they're saying on the news, flatten the curve? Mm-hmm. to reduce the spread of this virus? Well, I think that's that's a good question because, quite honestly, that's where 99% of the battle is right now. Uh, I'm certain that everybody has heard this concept of keeping your hands washed, but that goes more towards that fomite transfer, that you really don't know that every surface that you've come in contact with today, somebody has gone before you and adequately sterilized it. So mm-hmm. you have to almost operate with the presumption all the time that your hands have the coronavirus on them. And therefore, before you eat, before you're touching your face to do your makeup or shave or whatever it is you might do during the day, you really have to be very diligent about repeatedly uh, sanitizing your hands. Uh, Now, there is some relief of that. If you live in a home where nobody is sick and nobody has coronavirus, so far as you know, your surfaces there are probably pretty clean. But even good hygiene amongst your home and making sure everybody's been real good about washing hands or using sanitizer is a good idea. And my wife's done some pretty deep cleaning here every other day. (laughs) I'm sure she has. (laughs) And then the other side of this is is truly, uh, since those respiratory droplets have to come from somebody who is infected, the fewer people that you come in contact with, the less chance that you will come in contact with either uh, a respiratory droplet or a surface that they've contaminated. So this social distancing that you've heard about is probably our single greatest weapon. A lot of people will think, well, I don't feel bad, so I can run out to the store or I can run by and get my hair cut. Uh, but you've got to understand that that if you only see two people today, then only those two people could have infected you. But if you see 20, then you have 20 opportunities. And and if you see 200, then you have 200 opportunities. Yeah. It's like buying more lottery tickets. You're eventually <laughs> uh, going to get there. Um, and so really that isolation and limiting the number of different people that you're having contact with can really, really protect you. And even beyond that, the fact that this virus can spread for several days before you even know you have a symptom, as the three of us sit here this evening talking, uh, any one of us uh, probably feels pretty darn well, mm-hmm. but could very easily be shedding coronavirus on the other people. And yet we don't know that. So even if you feel well, you have to presume uh, that your 87-year-old uncle who you're stopping by to check in on or uh, the the 70-year-old cashier at, at the retail store you've gone to uh, that you may well be introducing to her a droplet uh, that you have no intention. So it's not just about protecting yourself, but it's about protecting uh, people that are easier targets for this. Exactly. It's, it's easy for people our age, and I'm not going to say how old we are, but our age, <laughs> our age, and, yeah, 25, our age and older to self quarantine. I don't mind it. Mm-hmm. My exactly. biggest concern is like the millennials. You see all these kids still going on spring break. I've seen several videos of kids saying they don't, you know, if they get it, they get it. So what? Mm -hmm. They're down there to party. That's scary because this thing can spread 
like a wildfire. It can. Mm-hmm. That's how fast mm-hmm. it can spread. And they don't. It just. They don't care. They want what they want. Well, and there's a little bit of the, and I don't mean to pick on any particular social media outlet, but there's a lot of experts that will voice their opinion on social media that suggest this is conspiracy or overblown by the media. Right. I, I will tell you, in, in 25 years of practice, I have not seen an illness this scary. And, and that's not meant to be uh, a fear-invoking thing, but it certainly is meant to tell people that this really and truly is something that has to be taken very seriously. Many of us will probably never see something this dangerous to our family and friends again in our lifetime. Wow. Uh, that that's the level of concern people really should be having and about taking this serious that that even if you feel well you may not be well even if you're certain that you don't know any of the people that you're interacting with have it uh it's just that insidious uh unfortunately you can pick this up from somebody that looks absolutely 100 percent healthy and and you just have no way of knowing that yeah. you've exposed yourself the only safe protection is to simply, I hate to say it, but avoid other people right? or, or spend more time on the phone or, or FaceTime or something of that nature. Yeah. So I heard you mention this, but you weren't super clear on the time, but how long does this virus live outside the body? Well, it depends a little bit on the surfaces. Right now, it looks like the worst case is for metal and plastic surfaces. So metal and plastic surfaces, we've seen studies already documenting viability three to four days out. Wood surfaces, surfaces that are more porous, uh, oddly enough, seem to have uh, a much shorter uh, time for the virus to live there. Uh, Generally, the more hot and humid an environment is, it shortens the virus viability. The more dry and cool the environment is, the virus seems to do well and stick around longer. Me being a nurse, what perked me up when you said the temperature is that usually in a hospital, it's a cool environment. Covered in plastic and metal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's exactly. not a good scenario there. Well, on one hand, those surfaces are very easy to sanitize. On the other hand, if they don't get sanitized, they're very easy to carry the virus for a longer time. Worst case scenario, what kind of impact could this have on our hospitals and our medical staff? Well, I think if lessons are learned uh, from Italy, uh, from what we hear coming out of Italy, is this literally in in even just a couple weeks can completely overwhelm the resources. Uh, That's the scary thing. There just simply are not enough intensive care beds, not enough ventilators, and that's not really a lack of planning. Uh, We wouldn't sit here with a thousand extra beds and a thousand extra ventilators that might get used once every 25 years. But it ramps up so quickly and people get sick so quickly uh, that that you just can overwhelm your healthcare system in an awful big hurry, no matter how good your healthcare system is. And this is why you hear so much about flattening the curve. In theory, in that concept and construct, you're going to have the same number of people get infected. But if we can get them infected over three months instead of over three weeks, then maybe it's kind of like getting a pig through a python. Uh, We can maybe digest that and get it through and have resources for each person as they get sick. Mm -hmm. But if they all hit us at once, we're just simply not going to have the resources, which is the experience that Italy is having right now. Isn't that type of thing that happened in Africa with the Ebola virus? It does. Very quickly. I mean, most African countries have extremely limited resources compared to what we're familiar with here. And yes, that system gets very quickly overwhelmed with a rapidly 
infectious uh, disease. And like I said, as as I got up this morning, I, I was commenting that we would probably uh, break 10,000 cases reported in the United States by this morning. And as I sit here now, we're over 13,000. Yeah. Uh, so we've gone on three to 4,000 cases just uh, since sunrise this morning. That's how fast this is growing. And those, again, I'll emphasize, are the known cases, the, the lab test proven cases. So as rapidly as it's growing, I've heard that for every person that tests positive for the coronavirus, potentially there's 12 others that have it that don't know it that that person has come in contact with. So I've heard that same uh, the same statistic put out there, and I suspect that's probably pretty darn accurate, maybe even conservative with the rate that we're able to do testing right now. Okay. And I would like to emphasize, too, even the testing itself, that is interesting from an epidemiologic standpoint to understand how this disease is spreading. But for most people, knowing whether or not you have coronavirus uh, doesn't change the treatment we have for you. You're either not so sick and we're telling you to isolate at home or you're really sick and we're admitting you to the hospital. Right. Uh, so I, I would say, you know, there's a, a great clamor for people to be able to be tested. And I understand that relative to jobs and such. But from purely a clinical standpoint, if you have a fever and a respiratory illness and you're doing OK, the best thing you can do for you, for the healthcare system, for the whole process is to isolate yourself and not just in your home, but maybe even within your home from the other people you live with. Yeah. Uh, if you are really sick and you feel like you're struggling to, to get past the illness, yes, those people certainly need to access the medical system and, and, and perhaps get more aggressive inpatient care. But for the vast majority of us, that's just not going to be the necessity. Most of us will be able to survive the entire experience of coronavirus uh, watching YouTube on our couch. Uh, uh, and, I, and that's not to say this isn't a dangerous illness, but for most of us, this is going to be a week of the flu uh, for most intents and purposes. The problem is, is you know, looking at the global scale, 3.4% of us that get it are going to pass from it. Now, we're seeing lower numbers than that so far in the U.S., maybe about 1.5% mortality. Mm -hmm. But globally, we're looking at a 3.4% mortality. And if you've got 100 people, well, that's you know, three and a half people didn't make it out of that hundred. But when you're looking at tens of thousands being affected, even though that sounds like a small percentage, it's a really big number of people. Who are the most susceptible? Is it the, I know you have a healthy 20 year old is going to be different than somebody that's 65 or 70 years old with diabetes or, you know, it's immunocompromised. So mm -hmm. who are the most susceptible at this point? Well, certainly, I think the first thing to think about is the, the older portion of our generation, probably 60 and above, the risk ramps up very rapidly. And, and each year that goes by, the risk climbs more. You may even see 20 to 30 percent mortalities uh, above 80 without talking about the other health conditions that most people in that age range have. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you looked at, say, just a diabetic, not, not a well-controlled or a, a, an awfully controlled, but just having the diagnosis of diabetes, the mortality of this almost doubles wow. uh, just by having yeah. diabetes. So uh, when people are thinking in terms of this, obviously we can't change our age, but for people who have health conditions, this is a great time to make sure that condition is optimally controlled, that they're, that they're keeping their sugars down, that they're taking their blood pressure medicine, uh, that they're doing their inhalers, things like that. Because if you get this and we have your condition under good control, you probably will have a better survival chance than if, if you've let things get out of control already before the virus even hits you. 
So that's a consideration for sure. Uh, so the elderly uh, are significant people with lung, heart uh, issues or issues that affect their immune system or people that are required to take medications that limit the, the effectiveness of their immune system, people with kidney disease. Those folks are all in jeopardy. And also we see a particularly high uh, issue with people who are living in crowded living situations. So this is why college dorms are no longer occupied. Uh, this is a problem in military barracks and why you're hearing people talk about prison situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, circumstances like that where there's close living, this seems to be uh, a little rougher. And for reasons that we don't quite understand, healthcare workers seem to be having a more virulent course of the illness when they are exposed. And that may be that they're getting multiple exposures. Nobody really has an answer for that yet. But there are just certain groups of people that we know are in trouble. Children under age two don't seem to have much of a consequence of this illness at all, other than them being a Petri dish to pass it to other people. Uh. Uh, what I will say is there has been this, this mythology is that your 20 to 40 year olds and 50 year olds are not really at all that much risk. And it's true they're at less risk. But I will tell you, uh, we are seeing extraordinarily high levels of hospitalization in this country in the 20 to 40-year-old group. Uh, Some states reporting uh, 20 to 30% of their hospitalizations are in that younger, otherwise healthy group. So it's not an inconsequential illness if you're otherwise healthy. So being on a beach on uh, spring break right now is just not a good call, to be honest with you. Yes, I would uh, agree. Even if you are young and healthy, uh, and it, even beyond just the risk you pose to your family and friends that aren't young and healthy, uh, just for yourself, it is not a, a scot-free uh, position to be in. Well, you think you're invincible at that age. At least I did. So what are the initial signs and symptoms? I know that the elderly, are, like you said, are more susceptible. And I, and I assume that the progression is because of the inactivity that it causes, and then that progresses to risk of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then it, it, so what, what is the progression of this, signs and symptoms? How quick do they appear, that type well, thing? Most people, when they come in contact with the, uh, the virus, the first place it lands is in the throat, basically, in the upper airway. And that's where it multiplies and really starts building its viral population. It very quickly after that, we'll get into the lungs. So what we were seeing probably an 80% or better is a fair estimate of people who have infection. The, the cardinal symptoms of this are, are cough and fever. Productive cough? Actually, it tends to be a dry cough, dry not cough. a productive cough. Yeah. So a dry cough and fever uh, are the cardinal symptoms. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't have a cough or a fever, you don't have it. And it doesn't mean if you have a cough and fever that you do have it. Obviously, that's that's a good point to put out there. But you'll also see maybe a little bit of rhinorrhea, some sore throat complaints. There's even some evidence that, particularly in older adults, they may even start with a little bit of diarrhea illness. Oh. Uh, but the cough and fever become a very prevalent main theme of this. Uh, The upper respiratory cold symptoms, you know, ear pain, sniffles, runny nose, that can happen, but it isn't really all that dramatic. Most of this is all about the chest and something going on in your chest causing a fever. So do you think that tying this in with, uh, I know that the higher cases seem to be concentrated in Italy and uh, Mm -hmm. also China, but do you think that has to do with their high concentration of elderly people in that area? Uh, I don't really. I suspect that simply means the bug got there quicker. Okay. I, I don't know that those places necessarily are any different than us. Uh, I think those settings are, are simply, when they see bigger numbers, I think what we're seeing simply is that they're just ahead of us in when they started their 
their rapid progression of infection. Okay. I think, quite honestly, at the end of this, just about every country will have the same percentage of its population having been infected. Now, what we may see is more developed countries do a better job of keeping people alive through the infection, but I don't think we're going to see a significant difference in the incidence of infection in any given country. I think Italy's a lot like China. They have the open markets. They have a lot of people mm-hmm. walking around their town squares. Their living quarters are just right next to each other. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why I think New York City and like L.A., the bigger cities in the United States, will probably have more cases of it. Mm-hmm. Well, just, it gets back to that concept we had of how many people did you meet today? If you live in right. New York City, you've, you've met a few thousand if you walked through Times Square. Uh, and like I said, if you lived in Wyoming, you maybe didn't meet anybody and you could have walked for 10 miles. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so. so are they any closer to any kind of vaccine? Um, I know they're doing some trials and they were talking about the uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. and the um, remdesivir or however you pronounce that. Uh, but that the the hydroxychloroquine is is what they use to treat malaria, correct? Correct. Malaria and some arthritic diseases can be treated that way. I, I will tell you, those things I think are great areas of hope. And right now, uh, three months into knowing this virus, we need to look at every possible avenue we have to either prevent or treat. Uh, but what we have in those things are extremely limited, extremely small bits of sunshine that may not amount to anything, to be honest with you. Certainly, I think uh, you probably heard the president talk today about chloroquine. He, he mentioned some of that. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to be shy about exploring that and seeing if it'll make a difference, but we definitely need uh, some controlled trials because those medicines aren't without potential negative side effects for people too. Right. Uh, so we've got to be cautious there. There's also maybe some evidence that harvesting immunoglobin from people who have recovered from the virus might be useful, probably more for struggling inpatients because you just don't get that big a volume of that immunoglobin, but that can be helpful to people whose own immune systems haven't yet been able to ramp up and make antibodies to protect them. I think they've also done a good job of saying, hey, we want anybody that has an idea on how to create a vaccine with the, for this to yeah. start working on it. So the public, and that it's not just the government right. and the CDC working on it. We have everybody Absolutely. working on it. And and I don't mean to poo-poo that there could be great things come out of that. I think we have got to be doing that. But I would also say uh, most of us will remember how long uh, we lived in fear of HIV before there were effective antivirals and how hard it is to treat herpes with an antiviral and how challenging it is uh, for us, how many years we lived without vaccines for chickenpox. So there are a lot of viral illnesses that, that we live with even today because we haven't been able to get to a treatment or a vaccine. Now, that said, we also don't suffer a lot of measles or mumps or rubella, uh, certain other illnesses that we have gotten uh, answers to fairly Mm -hmm. quickly. So uh, not to say that there won't be a vaccine quickly, but I think uh, those things have to be happening, but those are not things that are going to get us out of the mess in the next couple months. How long does it take typically to create a vaccine for something like this? Well, you can get a vaccine really quite quickly, but what we can't always know is what the durability of it is. And we don't even know for certain right now that becoming immune prevents you from getting infected again. We've seen certainly a number of cases where people have been declared recovered uh, and then have relapsed uh, in a few weeks. So it's not real clear what immunity does for you. I mean, hopefully 
we would see a lasting immunity. But this may not be like some illnesses where you get it once in your life and you never have to worry about it. Yeah. So uh, would it be so, safe? Would it be safe to say that once they go through testing, clinical trials, get FDA approval? So it could take anywhere from 12 to 18 months to have a vaccine to, to give to the people. on a meaningful scale, yeah. I yeah. think a meaningful scale, that would take probably at least one year. Okay. Do you think it's possible that, I, I noticed this year, I heard a lot of people say this, that, you know, they felt like they had something that they'd never had before, that, that this flu that they got this year was just worse and just hung on for two or three weeks and, I don't know if you've heard that a lot. I'm sure you have, but it just seemed like this could have possibly been around longer than we knew. Well, I mean, that's, I think, uh, is something that's always curious. I will tell you, in my experience, every winter is the worst flu ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we do see a lot of people get really sick. But, uh, you know, even in my own ex- household experience, we had a, a lot of folks with cough and sniffles and feeling sick for, you know, a month or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a while for people to shake. However, just in knowing this, uh, if you watch the, the the pattern of tracking this virus, we know we didn't see this from anywhere else. It, it's kind of, we can track it back just by sleuthing right to Wuhan, China. We know that's where it had to start just because of how it's expanded from there. That's, you know, when you see ripples, you know where the rock landed, even if you didn't see the rock land. Yes, on. exactly. And it's that kind of thing that we know this virus was not here back in uh, October and November and early December uh, through both viral surveillance that we do uh, and also from tracking this bug. Now that we know it, we know where it started because that's where all the ripples point back to. Mm -hmm. It just seems like early on, I I remember the H1N1 and swine flu and all them different kind of Hong Kong flu or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember what you call it, but I've, I remember those, but I don't remember the panic like we have with this one. And the numbers are significantly lower than mm-hmm. those. Why is, why do you think that panic set in so quick with this thing? Well, I think the panic is there largely because in most of those other instances, we had some sort of combat strategy that we could get a vaccine uh, in place on those. Cause we had work already done. They weren't completely unknown illnesses. Okay. Uh, so there's there's some background there, but I think the thing that's that's scary here is uh, just knowing that we have zero immunity in the human population. It's not too often we come across the bug that we don't get at least partial immunity. You know, somebody who gets vaccinated for the flu might pick up a flu strain uh, that isn't in the vaccine, and yet they'll still have a better course and they'll do a little better just by having been exposed to a cousin of that flu strain. Mm-hmm. We don't have that here. Uh, having been exposed to other coronaviruses, so far as we know, doesn't help you out at all uh, with this coronavirus. I think the media has played a large part in creating the panic and the hysteria, too. Well, it is a two-edged sword. I mean, the, the, the level of communication we have now is great for getting the word out and getting information to people about what they need. But you have to be careful in doing that that you're not inducing an undue measure of panic. And and certainly, like I said, no matter who you are, what age group, what health conditions you have, your odds in every single case are better that you will survive this than that you will die from this. Oh. The unfortunate thing is you individually don't get to know if you're one of the ones on the wrong side of, of that odds yeah. ratio. Right. Uh, and so it's scary for that reason, to, to know that no matter who you are, if you get this, there is a potential it can kill you is a lot scarier than picking up a cold or 
or, or you know, a sinus infection because we don't think of those as things we're gonna die from. Uh, the fear is that I, somebody's told me I have coronavirus, I have my death sentence, and, right. and people worry about that. And I can't tell them that they're wrong, but I can tell them that no matter who you are, if you get this, the odds are if you sit on your couch uh, and stay away from other people, a week or two from now, you're all better and, and you're immune, at least for a period of time. I like that guy in Kentucky. He just packed up his stuff and went to the house. He ain't going to stay in the hospital any longer. <laughs> <laughs> they circled his house. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it is important that people understand that, that, that this is something to be respectful of, but it's not something to, to let fear overtake you on. What's uh, what's disheartening to me is how this has been politicized. Mm. And, and I don't care what your political beliefs are. I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. It makes no difference to me. I believe our president did the right thing in instituting that travel ban as soon as he did. I mean, I think that did help stop the spread of this immensely. I, I would suggest, too, that there is many, many, many excellent leaders around this world, and, and yet there isn't a single uh, leader, in my opinion, that could have anticipated and been prepared for this or even had all the right answers. Uh, we as doctors uh, over the past week have spent so much time debating with each other how best to do the next step because it is such a rapidly changing uh, scenario and, and everybody wants to get to the right answer. Everybody is offering up the best solutions they have, but this really is just such a unique circumstance that I don't think a, a single politician can have had all of the right answers. There will be sure. missteps in this process, no matter who's in charge. There will be missteps. Thanks, uh, team. Absolutely, and and we learn from those missteps and, and hopefully get ourselves on a better track. But I think to expect that someone's going to be flawless in this process right. is, is really a kind of a crazy high expectation. Now are all the tests, the tests for this is readily available, correct? Uh, not particularly yet. No, no. Uh, as you can see in, in Indiana, uh, we've done, I believe last I looked was under 400 tests in the entire state. 380. Truly a limited supply of these tests. And so the tests are being uh, carefully restricted to the people that we think are very most likely to have the disease or are going to be most consequential if they have it. Uh, so, for instance, a, a healthcare worker in an emergency department, if they have uh, potential evidence of the illness, we're much more concerned about finding out, do you really have coronavirus? Because it's going to impact a lot of contact tracing and a lot of frail people uh, than if uh, somebody... Uh, with a cough and a fever, but otherwise healthy, comes in and says, I haven't felt good for the last two days, but I've not traveled, and I don't know anybody with coronavirus, that person probably doesn't need a coronavirus test. So, so it's, it's possible that with the test being more available or more readily available, I should say, that you're going to see numbers shoot up very quickly, oh. as quick as the test is available. So it's not necessarily that it's growing that fast, it's that we're finding out that fast. That's a very, very, very good point. Uh, the, the disease is out there. We are not detecting a lot of it, but it doesn't mean the disease is not there. If you look at the uh, any of the Indiana state maps, you'll see counties that are disease-free and counties uh, that have 19 cases, uh, Marion County. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that the virus has gotten up to the border going from one county to the other and said, no, I'm not going there. Uh, that virus is in every single county in Indiana. That's why everybody has to be taking it seriously. This idea that because I live in maybe Grant County, 
uh, I don't have to be as cautious as somebody living down in Indianapolis. Right. It, it's just not the case. It, it is here, whether detected or not. Now, there's certainly going to be higher concentrations mm. in places than in others, but the the reality is, is it's everywhere. We're not screening every sniffle and every cough. And if we did, we would see that it was in fact everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that the uh, United States has done a better job globally of containing this thing? Well, that's a good question. I think we've done a better job of getting the word out. I don't know that the public in general has done a better job of believing it and doing the right steps. Okay. Um, that would be my take. I, I, I certainly applaud efforts where we take away the option. Uh, you know, as much as I hate to see people struggle financially with the work implications, but doing things like closing restaurants and 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 maybe removing people from hair salons and nail salons and places where we congregate and have a lot of a lot of interaction with other people. Mm-hmm. Although you hate to limit those things and you hate to challenge those businesses, that's certainly something we'd love to avoid. But the reality is, is if you don't take away those options, people are going to still avail themselves of them, mm-hmm. and we're going to lose the control of this virus. Do you see uh, the state of Indiana just doing a complete shutdown of everything eventually? I think it'll probably get to the point where you'll see a shutdown of the things that are not beyond essential. So you'll probably have to see grocery stores and pharmacies open. Right. Uh, we may need uh, certain businesses to remain up and functional, or at least in, in some sort of reduced capacity, like the takeout only restaurants, things like that. Uh, I don't think we'll get to where everybody just goes into their homes and locks down and we don't see anybody for two weeks. Okay. Uh, that, that probably wouldn't achieve very much, but, uh, I certainly understand why people are concerned about that. I believe I saw some stuff today that Madison County is shutting down an awful lot of stuff, probably well beyond what is required by the state right now. And so it will be interesting to see how many counties follow suit with that. I, I think Delaware, Howard and Lake County, they've already done that. Okay. They've shut shut down their government and everything. Mm -hmm. So so there's going to be people out there say, Okay, Doctor Pruse, I'm I'm at home, I'm doing what I'm told. What can I do to help my immune system to ward this off any way that I can, other than staying at home? What are some tips you could give them to? Well, there's not a lot absolutely proven, other than what I said is if you have medical conditions, make sure you're optimizing that. Uh, getting plenty of sleep actually is is useful uh, to your immune system. Making sure you're eating well. Uh, is important. Uh, I I hesitate to say, but things like Zycam, there may be some utility there for for preventing inhalation of the droplets. So I don't know that things like that are necessarily bad ideas. They may be be helpful. But uh, other than limiting your contact, that's, that's, again, part of the scary thing is there's just not a lot you can do to get out of the way of this. What you can maybe do is optimize your own health to be sure should you get it. And, you know, the likelihood is that most of us probably will get it. Uh, they're, they're projecting maybe a 60% infectivity. So a population that, that has the virus in it, about 60% of the people in that population or potentially more will eventually get the virus. So what you want to be is as healthy as you can be when you get it so that that virus battle goes quickly and you win. Now, I know that you're a Christian and you're also a doctor, of course, how, from a spiritual perspective, how do you see all this from that spiritual viewpoint? And what are some positives that can come from all of this? Well, I think that's really an interesting thing as well. Uh, I think uh, 
the beauty of this is uh, it helps us to get past ourselves. And by that, I mean, it's a humbling experience to, uh, to go to med school and to practice for 25 years and to feel I've got experience and knowledge uh, as most of us do. And in a week, get uh, brought to the point where I don't have answers. Uh, I think that is, uh, is an interesting experience that we'll all go through. Uh, everybody wants there to be an answer, but you know what? There may not be an answer. You may get this infection and, and you may have to see how the battle goes and you're beating the infection. And I think when we come to the end of what we can do, you got to give up a little bit of control. And I think if you're a person of faith, uh, knowing that there is somebody who is still in control and who you can put your trust in uh, makes a real difference in that in that relationship. So I think that this is an opportunity for uh, people to get over the idea that we as, as humans have all the answers uh, and that we can rely upon ourselves uh, for all the solutions. Sometimes the solution has to come uh, above and beyond man. And, and I think that's the time when people need to look to God. Yes. Amen. I agree with that. So this is going to be a a huge opportunity in in many a home uh, that maybe is lukewarm about their faith or maybe hasn't explored faith or maybe thinks they have faith, but but have never really had to test it. I think this is going to be a great opportunity for people uh, to look to God and ask themselves, what kind of relationship do I want to have with you uh, in in this experience? Uh, It's it's a scary time and and you want to find comfort and you want to find answers. And I don't think... uh, right now that that we necessarily have answers uh, that people want to hear. And nobody really wants to hear, I can't prevent you from getting infected, I can just reduce the risk. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the infection that you might be getting could potentially be lethal. We wanna have somewhere we can get comfort in that. And I think that's where uh, the relationship with God is gonna be examined a little more closely. And I think on the other side of this, I am certainly hopeful that, that through, through such a challenge that maybe in this country, uh, uh, our ability to lean on our faith and our lean on our relationship with God is going to improve to this event. I think so too. And I think that the attack as we would look at it spiritually will be turned for good and that no weapon formed against us will prosper and that it's turning the family inward. Families have been prayerless. They've been scattered 48 directions here to wherever and now they're having to spend time together, talk together, stay in the same house together, and get to know each other again. And not only that, I believe that we need to remember our pastors. None of the pastors of this that's going on right now have ever had to deal with anything like this. No. To have their congregation scattered to the houses. How do you shepherd the flock whenever you're not allowed to see the flock? That's right. Yeah. So I think it's a it could have a very powerful effect on our communities as far as bringing us closer together, taking care of your neighbor, uh, them type things. I Absolutely. really believe that. Absolutely. Well, in times of trial, that's uh, certainly where the American spirit picks up uh, quite well. But I think absolutely it's the heart of Christianity. Uh, through most of our history, uh, being a Christian was not an easy thing to be. No. Uh, and it was about uh, getting through all of the challenges as a community. So I think your point's well taken. Yes, and it's it's challenging our faith, like you said. What mm-hmm. do you really believe? Do you believe that God can help you through this or not? Is he able? Yeah. That's right. Well, Dr. Pruce, we really appreciate your insight, yes, we do. your wisdom, your knowledge. Uh, we hope that our listeners 
pay attention to what you've said, how to prevent the spread of this. And I would say to our listeners, if, if you want to get some good information, go to cdc.gov. And you could also go to the Indiana's website. They have a, they update daily at 10 a.m. It's in.gov slash coronavirus. Those are two main sites to go to if you want to stay on top of this and see how it's spreading or how it's not spreading. Do you have anything else for us, Dr. Bruce? Oh, I was just going to say, wait till you get my bill, but I think I'll pass on that. Yeah, I'll write you a check. <laughs> Is that an hourly bill or is that? Oh, if you're charged by the hour, we're only at about 45 minutes. So sorry. You had to prorate that down a little bit. (laughs) No, just, uh, you know, blessings on everybody, prayers for everybody. Uh, This is going to be a challenging time. Uh, And I, and I am certainly hopeful that, that the information people can really take it seriously and, and do just everything they can to get a good outcome on the other side. By the time, hopefully summertime gets here, We'll be past the bubble of this. I don't think the virus will be gone, but we'll be past the bubble. And everybody can breathe easier and get in the sunshine and 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 take the lessons learned. And hopefully lessons learned uh, in many ways, as you suggested, science and spiritual, uh, on forward from here. Well, we really appreciate you being here with us tonight. And Logan, you got anything? I'm just glad he took the time out to talk to us and I mean, help our community. Gosh. You're burning the candle at both ends. I know that for a fact. Yeah, and, it's keeping me out of the bingo parlor. And you just took <laughs> nearly an hour out of your time to help people. You help keep everybody safe tonight. Thanks again, Dr. Pruce. Yeah, no problem. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you.